Ever wonder why we relate and connect to the stories around us? Welcome to the DNA Podcast, a show where we discuss books, movies, and entertainment that help us understand who we really are. I'm Annabella. And I'm Dakota. Let's dive into our DNA. Third time's a <laughs> fucking charm here, people. Dakota showed up here at 5 p.m. It is now 8.03. Yes. We fucking failed recording about three times now, mm-hmm. but it's okay. Third time's a charm, right? And that's Fourth called time. trusting the process. <sighs> fuck the process. I'm okay. saying fuck the process. Okay. Well, there's that. But I think that's what's been fun about this whole podcast, in my personal opinion. There's no rules. Just speak freely. Speak fearlessly. My anxiety's to the roof right now. I might cry. Honestly, I might cry as well because of what we're talking about today. Because we were talking about a book that we recently read, and it was in a very pivotal point of things that I was going through. Yes. With my significant other. Some might say I'm a glutton for punishment for forcing myself to finish this in said times. No, but she I is, did. yes. But this book definitely made me cry. I might even cry talking about it today because it's just a short and sweet book. But today, what are we talking about? Today, we are talking about When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. Apologies if that's not how you say your name. At age 36, on the verge of completing a decade's worth of training as a neurosurgeon, Paul Kalanithi was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. One day, he was a doctor treating the dying, and the next, he was a patient struggling to live. And just like that, the future he and his wife had imagined evaporated. When Breath Becomes Air chronicles Kalanithi's transformation from a naive medical student into a neurosurgeon at Stanford, working in the brain and the most critical place for the human identity, and finally into a patient and new father confronting his own mortality. What makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future, no longer a ladder towards your goals in life, flattens out into a perpetual present? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? These are some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this profoundly moving, exquisitely observed memoir. Okay, so what were the thoughts? I feel like you and I had two very different experiences reading this book. Well, you read it. I audiobooked it. So very, (laughs) we'll get into it, but just very different. Sometimes I think it's worth picking up the book. And I think I learned that lesson this time. So Dakota, how did you feel? I absolutely loved this book. I did. I It's a short book, nonfiction. It's like 250 pages. And I just breezed through it. I was reading it at a very kind of critical emotional part in my life so far. Um, my significant other's grandma, whom he was really close with. It was his last living grandmother. Uh, we knew she kind of had cancer, but it just kind of got to a point where she started rapidly declining and it was a very high emotionally intense last four days that we got to spend with her and it was beautiful and everything went well, all things considered, but reading this book during that time and finishing this book literally the day that she died. Oh no. But I, I finished it before she passed. So like that was even weirder, but it certainly was very meaningful to me. And I loved, because he is a neurosurgeon and he's young, he got diagnosed with stage three lung cancer or stage four at 35. And so I'm 27. You're almost going to be 27. Yeah. So you think about how many, like, that's not that far away, less than 10 years away. Oh my God. Don't. And you know, that is like a critical point in your life where you are starting to essentially start the rest of your life. Like you're established, you've gone through your 20s, you can probably settle down. And like the next step is kids if you haven't had kids already. So all of this was like culminating into like one very yes. big 
discussion that I think I've obviously been thinking about, which is like, what is the meaning of life? (laughs) Episode one. That was literally literally the title. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it, I freaking love this. I really did. And I, I liked, I, I tend to like nonfiction books sometimes a little bit more because I think it's cool how authentically people can write about their experience or whatever it is they're trying to talk about. Other times we read nonfiction books and it's a snooze fest. So it comes with its own, you know, pros and cons. But um, so he was very like methodical in the way that he wrote and like talking about what it was like being a a neurosurgeon. So day to day going in, actually performing surgery. So reading that, I was just like, whatever. Yeah. You listening to that. I was literally on like my afternoon walk one day listening to it. And he was like, and then I pulled out... (laughs) It was like, I think the term they used was like, literally, it was just like a a wood saw. And I started opening the cranial passage and the smell of burning bone. And I'm like, oh my fuck. I was like, I can't, I can't. I guess, ah." at least when you're reading it, you're not like auditorily hearing somebody like describe it. It like hits you differently. So there were certain parts where I was just like, okay, next, next, next. Whereas like, if I'm reading it, I could just like skip the line. That's kind of what I did. Yeah. Yeah. See? Okay. There were certain parts that I was like, I get the gist. But what I did like... For the most part, I can't say it was like during the portions where he was talking about, you know, cutting through the skull to get to the brain and removing a very specific part and like the quality of it. That obviously was what it was. He talked a lot about neurosurgery, but also the relationship that patients have with their doctors, especially with like a terminal illness like this, where you have the capacity to like potentially give this person years to live. Yeah. Or do something and it might not make a difference. Definitely. Yeah. So I think it touched on a lot of the obvious of what do you do when faced with an illness that is terminating your life? It also talks about that relationship with patients and doctors. One I feel like is kind of an art now. And I don't, I don't personally think that a lot of doctors feel that way anymore, Mm -hmm. but that's a whole nother topic for maybe another time. I don't know. Maybe we'll touch on it, but yeah. I really like it overall. What about you, aside from the uh, first, you know, initial graphic? I did like it. And I think his perspective on things was really cool because you don't get to hear perspective like this a lot. You'll hear like how we did it from our first book, like the the cheesier, more more like cliche ways of always being like, what's the meaning of life? Like we have to like live purposefully and nah, nah, nah. But like he literally was faced with this issue where he was like almost at the pinnacle of life, Right. And then it's just stripped from you. And then you're left with these choices with like, what do you do? Do you continue to move forward? Do you change your life path completely? Do you start a family? Do you like the burden of then starting a family and then being like gone for 90% of it because you know you're going to pass. So there's just so many questions that he just brought into perspective that was way more outside of the cliche like books that you read nowadays where it's like life is short live it to the fullest carpe diem and it's like it, it was cool it was it was cool it was very like hard hitting and obviously you know tough to explain and describe what you go through too with a spouse you don't know one ever really talks about what the spouse might be going through too and the tolls on relationships so it was it was unique in that the perspective was so original and raw and and it hit on so many other different topics other than just the cliche ones. So. Yeah, I agree. Um, I want to talk about the first part 
where he's talking about because also at 35 he hadn't even finished his residency and there was like this is kind of jumping ahead but there was question of whether or not like they were going to allow him to graduate which like to me i was like are you fucking kidding yeah like this dude is dying of cancer and he's still trying to be a neurosurgeon which to some people might be like are you are you okay yeah can you, <laughs> are you sure you can operate on my on my brain shouldn't you be like traveling with you your family to, like, <laughs> maybe relax a little bit yeah. but i understand the struggle of being like i have worked my entire life to get to a certain point and i will say it takes a very special kind of person to do this kind of job i think about sometimes how people who work at like emergency services so like um, ambulance, EMS, yeah. firefighters, police officers. I'm like, they they must experience anxiety. Oh, yeah. How – I just – obviously, I'm not doing this job, so therefore, that's why. But how do you just remain calm when you are faced with tragic incident after tragedy right. all the time? I don't know if that's necessarily the case with him as a neurosurgeon, but essentially, if you're getting you know, surgery done on your brain, something's clearly not right. right. And it's scary because that's your brain. And like one small slip, like they often talked about how like one person had like a weird like kick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they weird... couldn't say names or anything. Or they only said numbers. Yeah, there was yeah. like a complication in surgery that somebody – it wasn't this guy that wrote the book, but it was somebody – he was recalling a story of another neurosurgeon. And he essentially had operated on a patient and something went wrong. And so that person could only speak in like numbers and sequences. Yeah which is like terrible, but it's also insane that your brain can do that at all. Long story short, I want to talk about when he, in the first part, is talking about going to medical school and like the grueling hours, which I just... No, thank you. I don't know how, how doctors are even like... Alive? Alive. <laughs> the, the amount of stress that they put themselves under just to get through school. Yeah. And then to be like, oh, I still want to take care of people. I'd be like, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Like, is school even the hard part then? Because it's like, I know. You have to go through so much more than post with like residency and like, mm -hmm. I don't even know. There's a quote where Paul is talking about a colleague of his called Marie or Mary. It's M A R I. Mm -hmm. -A -R -I so I'm assuming it's Marie or um, Mari. Mari, maybe. He was talking about the grueling hours of, you know, school and residency. And it says, Mari had a whisper of a thought. She said, I'm so tired. Please, God, let there be Mets. And Mets was like essentially like she, she was going to go in for a surgery. And if there were Mets, they would have to cancel the surgery because at that point it would have been too far gone. So they said, please, God, let there be Mets. There were. The patient was sewn back up. The procedure was called off. First came relief, then a gnawing, deepening shame. Mari burst out of the OR where needing a confessor, she saw me and I became one. And I feel like it's such a different experience. Like when you and I go to work or like are working and we're just like, oh, I hope this meeting gets canceled or I hope this project goes so much easier than I thought it is. And it's like, maybe that turns out and you're like, oh, thank God. Yep. But you don't feel that aspect of shame. Right. Because that's a real human being mm -hmm. and that's a real life that you kind of were hoping didn't work. It's such a twisted yeah. thought to have. I don't blame them. I'm not saying she's an evil person by any means because I think any natural person who is at their wit's end and is exhausted physically and emotionally right, right, would right. be like, I can't do this. Yeah. Like, I just please let there be Mets. But I feel like it's it's also like a good lesson to just be like, you know, maybe it's not always best to just wish everything away. I know that that was, yeah. that was one piece of advice that always in the moment I didn't, 
I hated it. Like whenever I would vent to like my dad about something, he would always play devil's advocate. And then he would always, or I would just be like, yeah, I just got to get through this week or I just got to get through this project. And he was like, don't wish your life away. Like try to make the most of the experience, whatever. And during the time I was like, can I just vent? <laughs> yeah. Shut up, dad. Yeah. God. <laughs> just kidding. I love you. But yeah, like in the moment I was like, can you just let me vent? Like, I just want to complain. Like, this is like a dumb project or a dumb situation that I don't yeah. want to be in and I can't wait for it to be over. And I think that that's a good lesson to keep in mind that even if you are going through a really hard situation to like look at it as a full scope and not necessarily be like, God, I wish this would be over. Cause um, not that it's going to be a situation like this where it's somebody else's literal life, but there is more to life than just kind of wishing your life away. So that's just like what it reminded me of. Yeah. But I remember that and just reading that story and was like, Oh, like my heart hurt. Yeah. Well, I think, and this kind of ties into the book. I think that, all of us as human beings have a little bit of this um, naivety that we're invincible. We all think we're invincible. And so things like wishing your life away and wishing like, oh, gosh, I wish this was real. Let's just skip to next week and it'll be gone and over with. When that next week comes and you look back, you're like, that was a week of my life that I just blew past that I will never get back now. And for somebody like Paul in this book, a week of your life, man, that from, from what it shortens out to be like, you're right, you're, you're 35 years. You're like not even at the halfway point because we have awesome healthcare now that you can live until you're a hundred. Whereas previous life expectancies were like 40. So you're hitting this 35 year old age. You're about to be at the pinnacle of your life. And then you're slapped with this news. One week of your life with this type of news may as well just be one fourth of the time you have left. And it's just like, to sit there and constantly think that we're invincible as human beings and that, oh, well, it's fine. I'll just have a great time next week or I'll just take that next project more graciously and, and not wish it away or enjoy it in the moment. Like, what if that doesn't come? And that's like one of the things I think you and I have talked about in this podcast, whether it be an illness like this or something that just freak accidents that you don't even plan in life for because you're my best friend, you're my family, like nothing bad's going to happen to you. But I can't, I don't have control of that. And that's something as a human race that we think we have this mental control over. And it comforts us to think that we have this control, but it's not actually there. And it's like, uh, yeah, I just think that overall, this book really highlighted like that human experience aspect of being vulnerable, um, not being invincible. And life has a weird way of kind of sticking it to you and probably your highest successes or the moments before your highest success. And we've talked about how life ebbs and flows. There's hills and there's valleys and you need both to appreciate the other and so yeah. on and so forth. But I just, I just like, I can't say enough good things about this book in my experience because I just felt like his writing style and to me it was very simple, but it was just like, I felt like he laid little nuggets and then yeah. just like moved on. Yep. And it's, I think only somebody with that kind of experience could feel and understand that way. Yeah. Because he does talk a lot about the relationship with patients and um, then when he eventually becomes one and how mm -hmm. he kept acting as a doctor Yeah, and the doctor that was with him throughout his journey was like, if you ever just want to be a patient, like you can trust me to be the doctor that will yeah. do the best for you. Oof. And him eventually realizing that he could let go and just be a patient. But, you know, I would understand, like, it would be the same thing as if I hired somebody to make a video and I for was you. Yeah, for me and as a video editor being yeah. like, well, are you going to do this? What about this? How about oh, this? Look at those jump cuts. Disgusting. I know. <laughs> what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, it's stuff like that where 
you don't really understand it until you're in the other person's shoes. Yeah. And it sucks having to be like appreciative of it until you are in that moment. Right. Um, but he's, he says a quote about, and it's still earlier on where he's talking with patients um, or rather about patients and conversations. And like his patients mm-hmm. range from children to old people. Yep. Yep. Everybody. Um, and he said, there is a moment, a cusp when the sum of gathered experience is worn down by the details of living. Mm-hmm. We are never so wise as when we live in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that was like his reflection on, you know, you can talk to all of these patients and have all their numbers, have all their charts, predictions, graphs of, you know, predictability of how it's going to go. Um, you have all these details, but at the end of the day, like you have to define what makes it worth living and like what he ultimately realizes as well as, as he goes through this diagnosis and goes through treatment and is also in this pinnacle point in his life where he has to make some decisions of, do we have a family? We don't have kids, but like, what would that look like for his wife? Mm-hmm. What would that look? How much of a, a life would he have involved in it? You know, yeah. his doctor would say things like, "Oh, well, you have like four. You have four years left. Like that's a lot." And then it also could be longer than that. Like you don't know. You never know. Yeah, and I think so. I kind of had like a slight bone to pick with this story, and that's maybe just because I'm an anxious psychopath who I get like a stub toe and I'm like, it's broken. I have to go to the hospital or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's like kind of that aspect of invincibility and, and almost denial because for me hearing him talk about the early stages of the chronic pain, the drastic weight loss, um, the, the coughing spouts, the fatigue, the, like all the things that he was describing that like so clearly fucking point to cancer at that first instance of the 40 pound loss that he describes. And so basically he had like two different spouts of losing 30 pounds or 40 pounds. That's like 60 to 80 pounds that you just drop and nobody's questioning. Like, come on as his, and I understand that the, the aspect of their lives are so go, go, go. You're a neurosurgeon. His wife was also a residency too. So like, I get it. I get it. But isn't there like an aspect of like doing your due diligence in like your own career field when you are a doctor to optimize your own health and like things like that. And for me, I was so surprised at how elongated the entire cancer diagnosis process was for him because if they had taken seriously and this is just me play, playing devil's advocate, taken seriously the first initial signs of cancer, which was all that fatigue, the weight loss, uh, the the chronic pain and the coughing and things like that, and clear blood test results and clear x-rays or things like that, I would have been like, no, let's get this shit figured out. There's obviously something wrong. And to then catch it at stage four, what, a year or two later? Come on, man. You could have been caught at stage one and your life exp- every like the the entire outcome of this book would have been entirely differently like entirely different and that for me that boggles my mind because I was almost like angry I was almost angry at like the oh it's just residency oh I'm just on my feet too many hours no because why are you like we we tend to make excuses for ourselves and how we feel based on the situations that we're in, like, oh, it's fine. I just did too much this week. I'll just do less next week. No, but you've done that same amount of work the last four years of your life in your residency. And now all of a sudden it's caught up to you. I don't buy it. And so for me, the whole time I was like, hello, red flag. Hello, red flag. 
red flag. Like I was like screaming while listening to the first whole half. And then I get it for your partner to also feel scared and like, no, you don't have cancer. Stop it. Shut up. Like, ah, it's, it's a defense mechanism that we put up because we don't want to be hurt. If you had just taken the moment to really pursue the possibility, because I understand the chances and like statistics, like who gets cancer like that. And you're 35 for 35 years of life. Like that's the other thing. It just, it, ah, it killed me. It killed me reading it. And then I was just like, this whole book could have ended so differently. Yeah. But I think that that goes back to, to even play devil's advocate it goes back to that we always think that we're invincible. Yeah. And I think that we get so caught up in the moment that we don't think, well, that's not going to, I'm 35. Yeah. It can be cancer. And it's like, I've been so stressed out of my mind. Of course I'm going to drop 30 pounds. Like I'm not eating well. I'm not taking care of myself. Like it is what it is. I also feel like too, when I hear people have lung cancer, like my brain automatically goes to, oh, they probably smoked. Yeah. Yes. And too. so I think that's just like our human nature to have a rationale for everything. Right. To be like, well, what, what happened? Why did you get cancer? Yes. And I think a lot of people who have had family members, close friends, whoever, significant others who have had cancer, there's not always a reason. There's tons of stories of people who have been the healthiest people in the yeah. world. They ate right. They never smoked, probably never drank, did everything right. And they got cancer. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's a rhyme or reason to it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's definitely maybe it could have been prevented. I don't know. But I also think that and I'm not justifying it, but I think that had he not gone through that at that point in his life and waited that long, we wouldn't have had a book that yeah. would have connected and spoke on such really tough topics yeah. about how do you find, honestly, which seems to be the theme of this podcast, how do you find meaning in suffering like man's search for meaning? Right. This book really reminded me a lot about that. And granted, that book was about the Holocaust. So it's like not quite a severe an experience, yeah. but definitely a severe one. Yeah. And, you know, I think for him as a student and as an adult navigating the world, he constantly talked about like how, like, how do I be the best neurosurgeon? How do I you know, why does our brain do certain things and why do we decay the way that we do? And he says, you know, shouldn't terminal illness then be the perfect gift to a young man who has wanted to understand death? What better way to understand it than to live it? But that's, I think that's just the truth though, that you never, in, in anything in life, you don't really understand it unless you live it. And I think you can have similar experiences with people of like things that they've gone through. That's what like makes us friends, right? It's like, oh, I've been through that before. We can bond over that. But you never truly know what something is until you live it. And something especially like that, where he kind of makes that term from going to be a surgeon and to being a patient and kind of understanding the ways that he's treated patients. Not that he treated them badly, but like he would always give them like numbers and data and stats and he still really wanted that as a patient and he like kind of rejected the fact that his doctor was like no i'm not going to tell you that in hindsight that doctor her influence on him was to allow him to be like well if you want to be a neurosurgeon in two months and finish your residency and graduate like you can do that but also if you want to stop and write a book and just be with family you can do that like she was trying to not limit his mind to just being like this is a concrete evident like cool i have four years to live you know it was more so like you don't have a lot of time left so whatever you want to do you need to make that a priority and that's essentially what the whole book is it's him figuring out what does he want to do with the rest of his life how does he want to live it who does he want to spend it with and you know, I, there's another, this was earlier on, I'm kind of butchering it. I don't have it saved, but it was like, you spend like the very earlier years of your life living it and then like the rest of it reflecting on it. And like, I'm only 27, but I feel like I'm already doing that. <laughs> like, I just find myself questioning a lot of like, 
choices that I made that I'm happy with, but still choices that I made that have gotten to me where I am today, experiences that I've been through, things that I've lived through and reflecting on like how that's impacted me as a person and how I want it to project myself into the future, you know? Well, one of the things I think is wild and I think is really cool to me because he personally works on brains. And so I feel like, you know, it's been researched for many years that we really only utilize what 10% of our brains. Meanwhile, it's capable of so much more than we actually think. And so like for me, I was always told this growing up by my dad where he would always say stuff like, oh, the power of positive mind. And he would literally like hear me (laughs) speaking negatively about a situation or whatever it might have been. And he would literally stop me and be like, listen, you got to change your perspective. You got to look at it positively. Like even if whatever the situation is, it's pissing you off, whatever. But at the end of the day, you have to start telling yourself something about that narrative in a positive way. And it'll, it'll eventually start shifting your focus. And I was like, oh, yeah, whatever, dad. Sounds like our dads have a similar mindset. No, literally. But legit, there's research studies and things like that that prove how thinking positively on a situation might physically create better outcomes. And especially for people in terms of like terminal illnesses and things like that, when they're getting these statistics, it's like being told the day you're going to die, right? Like if you're ever told that, that day's never going to leave your mind. Of course not. Yeah. And then your brain, brain will literally in some way, shape or form, you know, <laughs> make you die on that day. And our mind has the capacity to then control the rest of our bodies and control like your immunity and things like that. And so it can set you off onto a path of literal death and illness, or whereas thinking positively might set you on a path of growth and healing and things like that based on what you're feeding, you know, your mental loop. And so I think that's kind of what this doctor was doing for him, which was really appreciated by me. And like, I appreciated that he wasn't just so factually driven like Mary your 30% chance of dying is starting today like <laughs> I mean I'm joking but you know it gives a person then the chance to learn from this and instead of starting to wrap things up like all right one two three bye I've wrapped this up I'm dying you know in three months you know you're giving the opportunity for life and the opportunity for these chances to end things on his terms like completing the residency potentially starting a family things like that so I think it's important to keep in mind that no matter the outcome And no matter the situation you're in, you can choose to view it in whatever way you want to. And I think that's, it's a small point, but an important one throughout this novel. Because like, truly, he was probably going through one of the worst things human beings can go through. And I mean, like, aside from a freak tragedy, but like dealing with dying on a daily basis, knowing death on a daily basis, but being able to push yourself through it and look at death in a different way is probably... I don't know. It's just crazy. All right. Anywho. So I have one question for you. So um, his wife gave him the opportunity to really like sit there and focus uh, and said like, you know, hey, what do you do right now? And let's like start this treatment. And if you want to go back to residency on Monday and he's like sitting there like, what? I'm not going back to residency. What are you talking about? Like, uh, whatever. But he also sat there and was like, well, I don't know my statistical outcomes because if I have 10 years left in life that I'm going to focus on my literature and writing. But if I have 20 years left, you know, I might spend the first 10 working on residency and then doing that more research position that I wanted and then literature and then things like that. So speaking of careers, if you knew how much time you had left, would you change what you are doing now or change what you have done or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. That's to me, personality based. So 
for me, I'm very comfortable where I'm at. There's no reason for me to leave. Therefore, I'm not just going to uproot my life and do something crazy just because I feel like I have to. I'm very so much somebody who like values security and safety and consistency. And I have that. So why would I want to throw that away? If I was given a diagnosis that you know, I only had a certain amount of time left to live, then absolutely I would change my life. I probably wouldn't be working, to be honest. I would be traveling. I would be doing something else, you know, and I think that's normal. But I still wouldn't like look back and say that I've like wasted time on things because as I was saying earlier, I, I, that's what I like reflect on now as an adult. And especially like the things that we're watching and, and reading, they, they bring a lot of perspective, which I absolutely love, but it like kind of has to force me to realign like my values, which I think that happens at any point, especially when you're like 25, when you've had a couple years after, if you go to college, but like if you go to college and you graduate and you're like working in hopefully whatever field you, you get to be in, um, then you start realizing, do I want to do this? Right. So at that point in your life, like that 25, 26 era, you, you start to look back and be like, have I made the right choices? Have well, you know, what is important to me? And I don't know if you felt this way. I'm kind of like turning a new question on to you, but have you felt, let's just take five years because that's probably the easiest because any more than that, I, it, the answer would definitely be yes. But like in the last like two to five years, like have you felt that you've grown in a way where your priorities have changed? Because like I know mine have. Like when I graduated college, we, I think we both were, and correct me if I'm wrong, very like career driven and like that was everything. and we were like, we got to make it to the top. We got to succeed. Like we got to do this. And then you, I graduated and I have a job. I am still succeeding. I'm, I'm still doing things that are in my field. I'm creatively challenged. Like I have all the same things that I wanted, but it's not the vision of myself that I had. Yes. And I could easily look at that and I think be like, oh, I'm a failure. And I'm also not like writing that off immediately that I can't do those things someday. But I think I've also learned to value things that are important to me, like spending, I'm getting emotional, um, like value things that are important to me, like family and friends. And especially reading this book at the time that I had with Alex grandma and having the experiences that I had with her in those final days, which was like short and it was okay. But like that is important and it doesn't have to be this, this perfect right thing to say in that moment when somebody is going through something like that, but it's just being there and being present. And that's something that I've personally really valued and learned to value, especially now that, you know, you're here, you're back in the area. So now I value getting to be in person with you and doing this with you. Like I just, I'm rambling, but I just, I know that I, I feel like I've, I've changed so much in terms of what I value because I've just experienced more and more in life. Yes. You know, hundred percent. No, hundred percent. But I think to answer your question, I have reached, you know, what I envisioned through sacrifice with friends, family, everything. Like I've reached what I envisioned for myself. I got there and I hated it. And it took me going through like the realization of, you know, like you thinking what's right for you and what's right for your life and things like that. And just having to deal with the fact that like for me, I had to deal with <laughs> the fact that I blew away five years of my life 
like being so absent from family and friends and whatever, because my priorities are exactly as yours. Like, I don't give a fuck about living in a box as long as I'm loved with my family and like have, you know, whatever that fulfills me. And so for me, it's like, I've lived so outside of the realm of what fulfills me in order to reach like this vision of my life that I kind of had for myself and like career wise and education wise and like all those things. But yeah, hundred percent. The last like two to five years have been a really big struggle for me because I hit all those things and I felt nothing. I felt more empty than I have in my whole life. And it took like having to deal with that and deal with emotions of like, I'm not getting that time back. And oh my God, I'm about to get emotional too, but I'm not getting time back with my parents and my nieces and nephews and and you. (laughs) So yeah, hundred percent. I don't, I don't don't know, like 26, 25, like you really put into perspective what you do out of college because like college goes by in such a blink. And when you're out of it, you're like, oh, I don't have an exam tomorrow. No. Yeah. I want to go back to college like tomorrow. I would go back literally tomorrow. No questions asked because I want to sit there and like shake myself and be like, girl, fucking relax and enjoy this because I wished it away or like I grinded it away like so yeah hundred percent I mean like my priorities now are family and like quality time and like being here and you know picking up my fucking niece from dance practice at like six o'clock at night and like she smiles so much that I pick her up at like a random Tuesday because she doesn't know her mom didn't tell her I'm picking her up. It's a surprise. And she's always like, Titi. And she like jumps at me. And like, those are the moments I live for. Like, I mean, obviously until I have my own children, it's just, sometimes it's just really important to live in a way that fulfills you versus in the way that fits the narrative that you've been telling yourself your whole life, you know? Yeah. I love that. And I, I, that's, I think why I resonated with this book so much because that is, that is what it is to a T. You know, this, this man, Paul, like he had built his entire life, his entire career to reach, to reach a peak, you know, the peak of the mountain. And he got so close to that and was suddenly faced with a diagnosis that challenged that. And he was able to still graduate. He was able to even perform some surgeries afterwards and he still like took his time and realized time when, okay, I'm, you know, my vision's going, I need to step back. Somebody please fill in. Like he was able to recognize that he was never going to be as good as he was, but he, I think was able through that process to learn that he can do whatever he wanted to do. And it didn't have to be this vision that he set for himself. And like you said, the narrative that he told himself of what he was supposed to be doing, um, the numbers or however many you know weeks, months, years that he had left should not have been the determinant of what he wanted to do. Because if he wanted to write a book, he should have wrote a fucking book. You know, if he wants to go skydiving, he should go skydiving. Like there's just things that you should just do and you shouldn't restrict yourself to thinking, you know, I don't deserve that. I'm not ready for that. I don't, I have more time. And I'm not saying that in a sense of like urgency being like today, I'm going to quit my job and move to it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not talking about that. I think it's what we've been talking about where you have those moments of reflection at a young age, but realizing and having gratitude for those moments that you've had and not blaming or punishing yourself for making the choices that you made because Sure. Yeah. You sacrificed a lot. I know you did. And I know that how hard that was for you and you moved and you were away from everybody, but 
you gained a lot of other stuff from that and you can continue to gain now that you're back. You know, the universe has a way of working things out for you always, always, always. And that you can go through a time in your life that is really, really hard, but eventually everything always has to work itself out. Yeah. Yeah. And so if not, at least like at the end of the day, something can always be looked at as a learning lesson. And like, that's something I'll always take away from it. And now I can't like, you know, now it's almost to a fall, but like, I can't stop and not ask myself, you know, like if my sister or my mom calls me, I'm like, all right, no, I'm not going to pick up the phone this time. And then I'm like, no, no, I'm going to pick up the phone because, you know, before I didn't have the opportunities to, because I'd been working in an environment where I couldn't have my phone on me or like whatever, you know, anyway, so all right. Heavy topic. Well, where are we in the story? I feel like, oh, so there's some like ethical dilemma type things that are here and that he has to also think about in terms of like starting a family and he has to kind of uh, sit there and was first off like having marital problems and, you know, we don't know how to navigate this whole terminal illness thing, Yeah, I think, but ultimately it kind of brought them to closer together. Um, They tried couples therapy, things like that, and it worked and it got them communicating and coping and things like that. But the main question for them was, you know, do we start another human life knowing what we know? A, you know, now probably there's some genetic questioning that I would also have, but same do you want to agree if we know our kids are all going to have a terminal illness to like go through with having a child? That's, you know, that's like a huge ethical question, but two or B, you know, do I want to make you responsible for another human life that I can't be there and present for? And number three, like is they had to go through probably in vitro fertilization because when you have to go through chemotherapies or things like that, it usually kind of like diminishes your testosterone, which is what will help you start, you know, getting your sperm count up and things like that. So they were like, Hey, if you're thinking about this, you probably got to think about it right now. So it went from like a question you don't really even typically ask yourself to a decision that you literally had to make within a day or so like the, I don't know, like the timeline was stupid short or wasn't it like, like he got his diagnosis and then they were going through like probably within a month, right? Yeah. I want to say it was like a week almost. It was, or they were essentially like talking with doctors like within a week about what the next steps were. Yeah. So not only are you being like, I don't know how much longer I have to live, but now you're like, do I bring a new life into this world? And do I voluntarily sign my wife up, my life partner up for being a single mom? Because that's what's going to happen. Granted, she'll have family support, but she's going to be a single mom and she's built a career for herself too. How is she going to do that? And I mean, ultimately they agree on doing that. And, you know, I think that that is just such, such a personal, personal choice. And he does get to spend like some years with her. I think it's only like two or three. Yes. Yeah. I think after birth and after diagnosis is like four years. So we got to have like some three years with her, which I think that even just having like nephews, like there's certain things that like my nephews would remember when they were really little that I didn't think they would remember. Uh, Maybe she will, you know, remember that. But I think she'll also have an incredible, you know, person to, you know, learn from and read from um that's both here and not here you know like in in terms of life's lives that were lived and just things that were accomplished like i just like i was saying earlier just the fact like being a neurosurgeon in general is like insane and then having to 
build your career up into a certain point and then suddenly having to not throw it away, but like really hit like a pause button and reflect and reevaluate everything. Like you think your life's gone on one trajectory and suddenly it's not, which is plot twist how life works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that that's an incredible lesson to learn, but it just, it still is sad because like that she'll never, you know, there's certain things in her life that she's going to have to do without him. I don't know. I, I don't know if it, if it was the right choice. Like I said, I just feel like it was such a personal choice because you're, you're leaving behind a lot right. on, on one parent. Yeah. And, and then even the potential for more yeah. ch- children. So like they were debating on the idea of leaving behind even like pre-fertilized embryos that are just like literal human lives, just not implanted yet. You know, just like, what do you <laughs> like? I don't know. What do you do? Yeah. Well, the book kind of takes a positive turn for a little bit where he receives, you know, like some forms of treatment. I think this like he had a pill and then he ended up actually doing it was like really, really working. And, you know, that's why he was able to go back to fulfilling his residency. And he took on like a leadership role. And like like the like Dakota said, completing even a couple hours of surgery. But, you know, ultimately at the end of the book, um, he died. What was it? I think it was like after four years of undergoing like treatments and stuff like that yeah and you know that's four years of his life that he didn't have Mm -hmm. or you know he could have not had had he had waited any longer please i already went on a tangent about this but like please people go to your yearly physicals (laughs) get your fucking x-rays and get your blood work done do all the checks and just be proactive with your life and your health anywho so i do have you know like a silly kind of like light-hearted question and you know it's not relevant to the book but just like maybe think about it Um, so a lot of people who undergo cancer or, you know, other things like that, they sometimes get looped into what's called, uh, make a wish Mm -hmm. foundation. And so you can ask for like the craziest things. Like I want to throw the first pitch at, at a New York Yankees games, or I want to fucking play in like an NFL game. Like they literally make it happen. Like, you know, in the most like doable, doable, (laughs) but like also like any way possible, so, like, if you had the ability to fulfill, like, one wish, what would your wish be? <laughs> like, literally, one wish on this earth. And, like, I'm speaking, like, from your heart right now. Like, don't get in the mindset of, like, oh, God, I have a terminal illness. Like, how much time do I have left? And not, like, you know, like, no. Like, what is just, like, what is that one wish that you wish you could fulfill right oh now? Oh, my God. I don't know. That's a that's a good question. Okay. So, I'll, I'll go first. You think about it while I go. So I'll tell you mine. Mine is, <laughs> I've always loved heavy metal music my whole life. I've been like, you know, literally since I was like, like 11 years old, no joke. I went to my first warp tour. I was 11, got plummeted by a biker gang. Like, it's fine. Anyway, nice. anyway <laughs> I came out fine. <laughs> so my Make-A-Wish foundation wish would be for me to be the lead vocals with my favorite band of all time when they're doing like an arena set, like... Like, I don't know, like, I just can't imagine the euphoria standing up there and like, I'm singing the vocals with him would be like, I, I would, I would literally shit myself. Like, I don't know. That would be my make a wish moment. Like, that's like, ah, uh, no, like this, like if, if that was my wish, like I would, I would die. Oh my God. Okay. I thought of one. Yours sounds way cooler though. So there is this place in Africa, but they have their giraffe manor. Oh my God. Yeah. No. And you literally, it's very expensive. Um, because I looked into it, but you can stay and they have kind of, I think they're rehabbed essentially, but they're, they're not really wild, but they're giraffes 
on the property and they have different other uh, African animals. And literally, that's actually really it, cool. You are in a manner where they kind of walk around freely and they have these giant windows and they can literally come in and you could feed them. And it's like an absolutely breathtaking experience. And I would love to just experience that with like my closest loved ones. I've always loved them, I've always connected with them for some reason. They're my little spirit animal little awkward animals so it kind of makes sense but that would be mine that was a good question have you seen pictures of it no i've never oh heard my of it. god dude i gotta show you and like i said because alec and i looked into it because he was like what if we just like what if we just did it and i was like yeah and i looked it up and i went oh no we'll take out a 401 case yeah i don't even have one of those oh <laughs> <laughs> you know maybe that should be my legal wish to get a 401 401- Oh Lord, um, I have I have one last thing that I would like to talk about. the The last portion that he that Paul writes is talking about experiencing, you know, life with his daughter, and you know, kind of the last moments that he was able to be cognizant and aware and present. And then after that, it kind of transitions into um, his wife talking about the days that led up unto his death. Which she does a really wonderful job of like honoring his life, but kind of like still maintaining like this is what happened. Like we went here and like she obviously, of course, would remember like specific things he said. But um, the last last thing that I have and I remember reading it and being like that Paul says, it says, when you come to one of the many moments in life where you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world. Do not, I pray discount that you filled a dying man's days with a sated joy a joy unknown to me in all my prior years a joy that does not hunger for more and more but rests satisfied in this time right now that is an enormous thing and that was to his daughter and that's why i'm kind of glad that you brought that up because about you know ethically he brought a kid into a world that he only is going to know for three or four years Mm -hmm. and then never know again and i think that that alone just talks about the impacts that like humans can have on each other. I think there's so many people that have come into my life, some of which have stayed a lot longer, some of them not long at all. And even the ones that didn't stay long at all that were only in my life for a season have impacted me and have made me who I am today. And I'm so grateful for that. And I think that it just kind of reassured me that even in these moments that seem, you know, like, finite and they seem like short little whatever like you're just kind of blowing them off i do think that everything kind of happens in a way that is meant to make you who you are i'm not saying that everything happens for a reason like not quite like fate but i also do kind of believe that in a sense that people do come into your life for a reason i think you came into my life for a reason but i loved that i just i thought that was absolutely beautiful and for him to have like his last written words be that to her and to his daughter i thought that was breathtaking get it well, breath becomes air yeah a hundred percent and you know i think the love that you experience shifts when you you know have you created a human being like imagine like i'm not even going to compare it to it but like you know how like <laughs> americans nowadays literally are like oh my dog's my child but like like truly imagine you and your most loved human being on your entire like in your entire life like your husband or your wife or whoever it might be and like having created another human that is literally the embodiment of you and them combined just like sitting there in front of you being like i i made that we made that 
and I think that like you know the greatest gift and like the, for him the greatest gift like even leaving this earth would have been to at least see that and like you know his daughter and just like that would have been the greatest gift to him it's just like seeing her here on this earth and you know leaving her behind yeah yeah well that was a very hot and heavy book oh yeah but that's what i'm saying it was short and intense but yeah i feel like they like fire hosed us in this it was just like neurosurgery cancer dying what is the meaning residency yeah ah. oh my god but if you had to rate it i i love this book i really did i think it might not be for everybody like in terms of how it's like written if people aren't into you know that kind of like detail but i also think you listening to it like that definitely yeah audiobook was bloody and gory i was gonna say listening to the audiobook i would totally feel different but five out of five i freaking loved this book Mm -hmm. so much and i think it's also just like a personal connection because of what i was going through i mean we went from having four to six weeks with you know alex grandma to um three days and having to experience the highs and the lows and the good parts and the bad parts and just kind of learning that all you can do is just be present Mm -hmm. really I mean you can't stop her from happening you know whatever condition is happening to her but I will say it was hard to read this and like I I could have totally been a glutton for punishment but it was at a point where I was like I feel like I need to read this Mm -hmm. and I'm really glad that I did oh yeah 100% I bet like similarly like how he wrote in his last moments with his family like you know that what, what more of a gift is that than to be in a room full of people that you also helped create you know like yeah and she was ready it's it's always the people you leave behind that aren't ready and it's selfish but it it's the people that you leave behind that are the ones that don't want you to go but know that like you gotta go <laughs> yeah but if i ever leave this earth early you bet your booty i'm coming back I mean, like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hi. That doesn't really work for me. We're going to have to redo that thing. <laughs> You're literally going to hear like pots and pans banging in your kitchen and be like, Anna, fuck, go the fuck to stop. <laughs> what are you baking? Don't you have like a, a light to go walk towards? You're like, yeah, the oven light. I'm baking brownies. You just walk in and there's like a floating whisk in the air, just whisking. I can't with you. Oh my God. Well, I'm sorry. What are you, what are you rating this? Ah, yes. Okay. So I'm going to rate it a four. Um, I really liked it. I just really didn't like the experience of listening to it, but I really liked the book itself. Totally, I would assess it with a higher score if I would just were reading it and like connecting with the words. But like, don't get me wrong, I still picked up on like, you know, a lot of the meaning and things behind it because like the meaning behind the book, 10 out of 10, I'm five out of five. You know what I mean? I feel like there's some recent ones that we've had where, honestly, has there been an audio book that we liked? <sighs> I mean, yeah, full. But like the lady was just irritating. She was like, hi, you're gonna have to like pay for that. <laughs> I was gonna say the other audiobook that I listened to was Colleen Hooperborn. Which, well, we both have Verity, if you guys want us to read that. And so if you guys listen to this and you're like, yes, read Verity, I will read it. I have the book right there. No, I won't us. listen to it, I swear. She'll physically read the porn. But you know what? I think this is we've had some good pieces to start off our season two. We have a couple really you know, exciting ones coming up. We have some fun ideas. I think what we're going to try to do, I don't know if it'll be next or what order this is going to go in, but I think we're going to try to do our favorites. So we'll do Anna's favorite movie. One episode, we'll do my favorite movie and then books. So that's four episodes right there of our favorites and how they make up our human experience. Heck yeah. Done. All right, friends. Well, until next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for tuning in. We hope today's episode makes you feel a little more connected to your true self. Don't forget to follow the DNA podcast on Instagram so you never miss another episode. Until next time.